HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. And today we're talking to a not-so-young naturalist, uh, ecological restoration and foraging and publisher of wild plants information. Russ Cohen is our second-time guest on the show. We so loved him that we have him back. And I say welcome to you, Russ. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to talk with you. So... Um, I I realize in reading your bio that you have written um, a book called Wild Plants I Have Known and Eaten, which is a play on a book by Seton, Wild Animals I Have Known. Um, That's right. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to riff off of his approach to wildlands? I feel like he's kind of epic. He was, as as you may know, he was one of the founders of the Boy Scouts with Lord Baden-Powell. And Lord Baden-Powell was more of the wearing the uniforms and marching in line and stuff like that. And Ernest Thompson Seton was more of the connecting to nature via observing animals and their behavior. And eventually the Boy Scouts got a little bit too militaristic for Ernest Thompson Seton, so he set up a new group, group called the Bushcraft Boys. And it was a separate and parallel thing to the Boy Scouts that existed existed for a while before it eventually faded out, but um, but he was a, a direct observer of nature, and I like to be, too. Well, and um, one of the things that's been interesting in learning about the history of the nature study movement and of the uh, rural life, um, a lot of the theory that informed the New Deal was uh, that these... Um, the institutions we have today and the kind of relative prominence of Farm Bureau versus the Grange or of the Boy Scouts versus the Nature Craft uh, 
is not was not uncontested, and that, that, that there's these kind of competing institutions to hold American identity in in relation with uh, you know youth in in the outdoors or farmers in association, uh, and that we often only hear the victor story. In fact, right. usually. <laughs> Right, that's true. That's true. But I should tell you that, uh, as you know, uh, people were just more directly connected to nature uh, back then, 100 years ago, just because there were more opportunities for it. There were fewer of us. There was more nature immediately available to people. Kids used to play with plants at the bus stop rather than with their handheld devices. Um, uh a lot of the foraging books that I have, the ones that are uh, before the Second World War, they'll begin a description of a plant by saying, every boy knows this plant. And uh, wow. uh, it's sad to say that would almost never happen anymore. Wow. So um, let's talk about what um, what you're doing in the world and how people are starting to relate to plants in the watersheds that you're a part of. Sure. Well, I have been teaching foraging and connecting people to the outdoors through their taste buds for over four decades. I started in 1974 was the first class I taught. To, I was in high school. I taught other high school students. And I continue to do that, but um, in gratitude for nature being so wonderful and providing all these yummy things that I've uh, uh, been able to uh, um, nibble on over the years, I've been actually trying to propagate plants, edible native species, and then partner with land trusts, cities and towns, state and federal agencies to just add more of these to the landscape uh, in appropriate locations. And so I gathered a bunch of seeds last summer and fall, and I, I, I store them in a fridge in my basement because most of them need to go through that dormancy period. And then this spring I put them out into flats, and I've been waiting patiently to see if anything shows up. So you're essentially uh, figuring out municipal commons and acting as a Johnny Appleseed or nurseryman to these, like, parks and semi-wild or what would you say, recreationally domestic landscapes in which well, they're... It, it, at least in our area, most of our natural areas aren't really that natural. They appear natural superficially, but they often have a long history of um, some kind of uh, land use, like, uh, you know, the, the virgin forests were cleared, the land was plowed and grazing and stuff like that, and excuse me for that obnoxious noise. That's going to keep up for a while. We'll try to talk over it. So anyway, the um, the uh, impact is that um, these uh, natural areas, although they're somewhat natural, they don't have their original complement of native species there. And so there's an opportunity to enhance the plants that are there with additional native species that weren't able to get there on their own. And because I like to connect to the outdoors through my taste buds, I'm promoting edible native species. So this is kind of like landscape-scale permaculture or like gorilla, gorilla wild rewilding or selective wild tending. Are there other right. people uh, thinking in these ways? Uh, like, are there a community of um, people who get together and have conferences talking about their schemes to um, be wild <laughs> in such context? Well, I, I should hasten to add that uh, 
I am doing everything with the full participation and actually usually enthusiastic participation of all the landowners that I'm working with. So I'm not sneaking any stuff on any property. I'm actually, uh, you know, proposing to them, here's the seeds I have, here's the plants I have, any of these interests you. I'm happy to walk your property and figure out what's appropriate to go where. And I actually have a list longer than I can um, um, meet the demands of all the people that have said, hey, Russ, this is a great idea. We'll work with you. Cool. Wow, and that really expands the territory of where interesting things can happen. I mean, I just come back from the National Park, the Sleeping Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes National Park and Cultural Landscape that surrounds the more wild areas that includes a lot of historic farmhouses. And right. there, too, they're investigating ways to partner with the park to preserve the heritage trees that are there, relics to the early settlement. I mean, I just was in a Pueblo, burnt-out Pueblo last week, where there's really nothing but some pot shards and a little bit of remains. But um, there's, you know, there's um, later plants that are clearly established uh, that are just like relics of settlement. It's incredible how long these creatures, uh, these plants persist in the landscape. Right. So, um, yes, and and you're bringing up a point that, of course, many of the native edible species that I'm um, learning how to grow and and passing along to uh, farmers and other landowners are plants that are, uh, have important roles to indigenous populations and, um, and it's really cool. Actually, one of my favorite plants is the shagbark hickory. And, uh, and hickory, of course, is of Native American origin. It comes from Pauco hickory, which is a sort of a porridge that the Eastern Indian tribes made from pounding up this nut and boiling it up into uh, gruel. And uh, it's one of my favorite plants in the landscape. I've collected a whole bunch of the nuts to eat and also to grow into trees and get them out on the landscape just so there's more shagbark hickories for everybody to enjoy to benefit wildlife and everything. Wow. Well, um, so some of the questions that are raised when we discuss more extensive or lower impact or lower input um, or more native uh, and accommodating or farming with the wild, all of these approaches to agricultural, agroecological landscape stewardship that do not include tractors and fertilizer are often critiqued right. immediately as implausible, impossible, not productive enough. Who are you, unrealistic person? And I would like, since you're so um, much older than I am, for you to use that expertise to refute this this um, critique that we who are putting our young lives to work in ecological agriculture must face, often from within our own family. Well, uh, I will say that when I started work on rivers back in the 1980s, uh, and I would see farms where they would have the cows pooping in the water, or have the, the, the tilling go right to the water's edge, uh, not terribly environmentally sensitive farm practices. And I would talk to farmers about, hey, what about taking a strip of land between your active farming and the river and converting it to a hay field or to blueberry patch or to Christmas trees or to some sort of perennial crop so you don't have to be in there so actively uh, um, interacting with the land. 
And uh, I think the message was good, but I think the messenger wasn't the right person because I wasn't a peer. They didn't perceive me as a peer. Whereas if another farmer started doing it and then they organized a, a field trip to bring other farmers in to see how somebody said, yeah, you know, I don't have an inactive corn or soybeans, but I've got this other land use which is still being productive to me. And look at all the bees working these flowers and look at all the songbirds eating the berries. And I feel really good about this contribution to nature that I'm making while I am farming. And so I am seeing that catch on now more and more uh, when and perhaps the message is a little bit too early in the 80s, but I am seeing that idea get spread more and more lately. Well, you know, one thing that seems to be true also is we culturally often seem to want to have a, a fully fleshed out plan of how it's going to work and that the solution that we propose is complete, total, comprehensive, you know, has is watertight, makes business sense, et cetera, et cetera, and then we can rely on that, and that is good science. And it seems, just looking at the world, which I am doing often through my windshield, that um, there is no plan, and it may not work, and who knows what will happen. <laughs> and that we can't be so paralyzed in experimentation, especially around topics of transitional land use and transitioning climate, agricultural climate. Um, right. A lot well, of the work that as, needs to be done won't be justifiable on those terms. Right. And, and, and as you know, uh, I, I've never been a farmer. I really respect farmers, and I'm, I'm probably just not brave enough to be a farmer because there's so many things that are out of your control, the commodity prices, the weather, uh, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, I really admire farmers for taking on the challenges that they do, and I can understand how um, taking on new ideas and new concepts when, you know, the traditional ways work for them, work for, you know, their parents and grandparents, and they've been farming the same plot of land the same way for so many years. I, I can understand the momentum that's built up in that. And so... Uh, I, I don't envision seeing changes happening across the board in every single farm immediately. They're going to have to happen, uh, you know, to, to use the, the, the time-worn phrase, the low-hanging fruit. It's the farmers that find themselves in a particular situation where the idea appeals to them, and you'll get some early adopters there who will start planting natives on the edges of their fields to benefit the uh, migrating birds and the pollinators and stuff like that. And uh, and as they do it and uh, are able to uh, make it feasible and workable for their property, then I think gradually other farmers will will follow their lead. Piece piece by piece, just how the bird like how the birds find their habitat, they're looking right. So, um, landscape transition. Um, let's talk a little bit more in detail about how those listeners among our audience who have patience for all this philosophizing, and some of them even like it, um, might be more proactive in their own land management decisions about which kinds of natives and how they treat their edges of fields and the resources that they use and the approach that they take to that farming with the wild agenda. Sure. So well, your audience um, now in this is, is kind of like who are... These are, that's actually who our listeners are. So, <laughs> right, 
Right. Well, when 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 I'm uh, out interacting with the landscape, looking for good foraging opportunities, the edges of organic farm fields are one of my favorite places to go. And um, you know, one of the reasons is because it's an organic farm, you don't have to worry about the landscape being slabbed with chemicals. That's good. And then uh, the wonderful living organic soil that makes the organically grown vegetables so nutritious to eat. All the good stuff is getting into the edge species too. And uh, although I'm promoting the planting of edible natives on the edges of farms, uh, just naturally there's all kinds of other edible plants that are occurring there. So there's the, the to use a polite term, I would say the opportunistic species, but these tend to be non-native species. So the, the edge of the farm field I'm talking to you from right now has got a wonderful crop of burdock and of wintercress, both very highly edible, nutritious plants. These aren't plants that I would imagine anybody you know, well, I guess there is a cultivated form of burdock, but in general, farmers probably aren't very fond of burdock. But as long as they have it, they might as well be eating it. It is a very nutritious and tasty plant, as is the wintercress. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of all the edible weeds and uh, non-native species that are interacting in a farm environment. So all those are already there, plus you can uh, tweak the landscape a bit and on the edges of the field bring in other uh, wonderful plants like the shagbark hickory I mentioned before, or elderberries, or um, other plants that can um, uh, just diversify the landscape and just make it uh, that much more valuable and edible, too. Well, I just had a really nice experience emailing a nurseryman that I knew and asking for a nursery that did herbs and or understory and shrubs and had to focus on natives and organic production and got an answer right back and was happy to have a referral like that. Um, but definitely the cost um, and and detail work associated with species that are not necessarily as economically immediate for the farmer uh, can be can be easy to drop in the priority chain. I wonder um, if you've seen on, on from a farm from a farming perspective, how these kinds of wild plants kind of make it to the top of the list better, or some okay. Well, well, or, um, first of all, of if you're talking about they, oh, sorry about that, if you are no, talking ahead. about native species and you're good in selecting the right species for the right place, you know, this is a uh, uh, time-worn phrase, right plant, right place, that's used a lot in landscaping, so not so much in farming, but, you know, when you're trying to figure out what you could grow on a house lot, uh, you look at the various, uh, you know, the slopes, the sun orientation and stuff like that, and then you fit to the landscape the most appropriate places that uh, will likely do well in the places you pick. Well, n native species, once they get established, they don't need to be fussed over like most conventional species. They don't need heavy pruning or watering or other, uh, you know, high maintenance and management. They're used to fending completely on their own, fending for themselves without any attention whatsoever. So, so if you make the selection correctly, and sure, the first year you might have to make sure the, the new plants get watered till they get established, but once they're established, they should do fine without any attention. So that's one good thing. And then also, as I'm finding out myself, um, a lot of this stuff, you know, if you just uh, collect the seeds or are able to obtain the seeds from other people, you know, planting plants from seed is pretty cheap. You, you know, you might, 
invest a little bit in some uh, growing medium, um, you know, to get plants started in flats, whatever. Uh, but some of the seeds can be directly broadcast just uh, in the places where you're hoping the plants will grow because of that's, that's, of course, how it occurs in nature. So the costs need not be prohibitive. And I would just, just suggest to anybody that, that wants to try this is uh, uh, just start um, in a very small area first that, you know, is an area that isn't really important to you, you know, where you got to get, you know, your – I mean, you, you probably don't want to go to the middle of your prime ag soil and do this. Just on the edge of the field, a place you're not using anyway – um, try this out and see what you can get to grow. And if it does well, it may naturally establish itself there and just, um, you know, begin to spread along the edge of the field on its own without further help from you. Well, I know that um, the whole ramp scene uh, is a great incentive to get out in the woods. And the ginseng um, and go- – uh, wait a minute, ginseng, American ginseng and – uh, kind of silver-crafted Asian ginseng are very um, interesting economic crops and in that more and more local herbalists are interested in buying local herbs, and certainly people are going gaga for the ramp. Um, can we talk about the ethics and approaches to kind of selectively propagating and creating better habitat for the species that you desire in a woodland? Yes, uh... I'm glad you brought up the ramps. This is a plant called the wild leek, Allium trichocum, and it's um, a plant that is part of um, the landscape here in the eastern U.S., uh, the Appalachians, and it extends up into New York and into particularly western New England. And um, and it's a plant that uh, uh, Native Americans used, and there was very low harvesting pressure on it until 10 or 15 years ago when it began to... Um, experience a meteoric rise in popularity due to uh, high-profile chefs and foodies beginning to hyperventilate about it. And unfortunately, what that has engendered is a bit of a gold rush mentality where people go off into the woods not to connect with nature in a personal way, but just to convert it to cash. So they'll go and dig up a bunch of ramps to sell them. And that's a problem for the ramp patch because I've seen a lot of patches where the plants have been extirpated. That means made locally extinct, where every single plant was dug up and removed. And they won't come back if you do that. And then where the bare soil is left behind and the rich woods, the sensitive habitat where the ramps grow, it creates an ideal growing medium for the seeds of the garlic mustard and the other invasive species to form a toehold and really cause some serious ecological disruption in these habitats. So the uh, uh, word that I've been trying to get out to the chefs and the people that are picking for the chefs is don't dig up the plants. Just pick one leaf per plant, leave the remaining leaf attached to the bulb, leave the bulb on the ground, and that is a totally sustainable way of interacting with the plants. And I have some emphasis, some uh, anecdotal evidence that word is getting out there because I heard from the produce manager at the Hunger Mountain Food Co-op, the one that serves Montpelier, Vermont, that they had decided in that food co-op to sell only one leaf per plant ramps, little bags of them, and he contacted me to ask my permission to put a little message from me in each bag to explain why that was a good idea. So I was so grateful for that, and I hope that catches on. 
but uh, it is possible to propagate ramps, and I'm actually talking to some farmers right now about how they might use a stock bed approach, which is basically a raised bed, and you pack it full of ramps, and if you do it right, you can pull off a certain percentage of ramps from that stock bed and then use those for cooking and have enough left behind so that you can have a sustainable level of production. And if people are getting the ramps that way, then uh, they're not depleting those in the natural environment or causing any sort of ecological disruption. So it would be great if more of that happened. Well, and there's a wonderful book by um, Robin Paul uh, Kimmerer uh, called Braiding Sweetgrass, and she talks a lot in there about the honorable harvest and kind of the rules for engaging with wild plants and the ethics and approaches to take. Um, and it does feel like that's a, a core area of eco-literacy that has been, that I'm sure Seton would have taught us had we attended the School of, of Woodcraft. But yes. um, the USDA I have read, does not I have us. read. I have read Braiding Sweetgrass, and it's a great book, and I recommend it to everybody, especially if you have any connections to upstate New York, uh, where uh, the writer is based. It's a great book. And, uh, yes, it would be – I do preach conservation and encourage people to forage in an environmentally and ethically responsible way uh, when I teach. And that's why I actually – when I'm teaching foraging with folks, I like to emphasize the common plants. And these are ones that uh, if they got viral in the foodie world and everybody got excited about them, there are enough of them to uh, allow quite a bit of harvesting. So uh, as, as I'm saying this to you, I'm staring in, in the field in front of me, there's still the remnants of this year's dandelion crop. If we all did nothing else the rest of our lives but pick dandelions, we couldn't make a dent in how many dandelions there are on Earth. So that's a guilt-free foraging opportunity. It's a, it's a wonderful, delicious plant, especially the unopened flower buds, one of my favorite vegetables, cultivated or wild. And uh, if you time it right, so that would be earlier than now in, in the Boston area, it would be like the end of April when the plants haven't started to bloom yet. You can collect thousands of these buds, and you just blanch them for 60 seconds, and they're wonderful flavor. Wow. Let's talk a little bit of some other um of some other plants that you have up your sleeve. I mean, I've noticed that there's just often, like, seedlings growing um, of domesticated or of, like, beautiful oak tree, and then there's some seedlings, and you could just grab right. that or take pawpaw seeds and, you know, just quick pot, 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 pot them up. You want to talk about some other, like, crafty? Sure. Plants? Sure. Um I've had tremendous success with beach plums, and you mentioned Sleeping Bear Dunes National Monument. I wouldn't be surprised if beach plums grow there because they will grow in dunes far, far away from the ocean. So like in the Indiana Dunes National uh, Lakeshore, uh, the southern end of Lake Michigan, they have beach plums. And beach mm -hmm. plums will actually grow in any um, sunny location with well-drained soil, You'll need to water them to get them established, but then they'll send the roots down to the water table, and they'll do fine. So I collected a bunch of beach plums last fall just from the coast here in Massachusetts, and I stored the, I ate the fruit and made strudel out of it and beach, beach plum jam, which is wonderful. But then I saved all the pits, stored them in my fridge, and in the middle of the winter, they woke up. Some of them started sprouting, and their little roots were looking for soil. So I potted them all up, and almost all of them survived. So I've now got 
six-inch high little beach plum plants growing in these pots in my yard. And once they get a little bigger, I'll be looking for good places to plant them and, you know, with cooperating organizations that are interested in them. Wow. I can just imagine if you get the mojo of the native plant enthusiasts and the, and the garden society ladies, plus all the permaculture people, if you put them into a bottle and shake it, what kind of an explosion of, of low-input native-based landscape edible love could happen? And what right. Kind of well, you were talking to... <laughs> You're talking to two constituencies that I'm already connecting with, and uh, and yes, they are. Both groups are very interested in working with me. There's a wonderful new group in Maine called the Wild Seed Project that's run by Heather McCargo, who used to be the plant propagator at the New England Wildflower Society, and I've provided her seed to distribute up in Maine. She's given me her seed from up there. She gave me some wild strawberries that I planted out in flats, and they're just beginning to show now. Uh, the little cotyledons are coming out, and it's very exciting. And uh, and anybody that's got an organic lawn ought to have wild strawberries growing in that lawn because that's exactly the kind of habitat they like. And wouldn't that be fun to be out in your lawn and just nibbling on a wild strawberry? Yeah, that sounds really fun. There's not really any downsides, are there? No, I don't think so. I, I only see an upside. You know, the, the only thing to remember is that some of our native species will have assertive growing habits, and so you want to be careful where you plant them, like they're native mints. But in a case where you're trying to recover a um, uh, you're trying to restore a degraded landscape, that might exactly be what you want, a native mint to spread and fill the area. Huh. So here's a question. When you go off and get some seeds or, like, uh, you know, I, I, I really love to harvest from the commons, and I've worked for some people doing um, seaweed harvesting and learned from them about how much of the plant to harvest. And every summer in Maine, I collect rose petals from the wild roses and rose tips from the ocean and, you know, wild uh, choke, choke cherries and wild um, blueberries and wild in, in Oregon, there's huckleberries. Um, but then once you get this, when you find a plant and you're like, this seems like a really good tree, or those um, carnelian or magnolian cherries that are the dogwood family. Right. Because they're called. And you're like, okay, this Cornelian is Cornelian cherries. Cornelian cherries. You fit, so then, okay, so you've got your favorite bush and you know it does really well. So then you gather seed from that. And then you grow out the seed. You know, what does what would Johnny Appleseed or they say what would Jesus do? What would Johnny Appleseed do once he's identified a good mother plant and kind of instigated the first uh seeding? What are you looking Okay, for? well first of all, uh as as some people in your audience will know, planting things by seed, you are getting the benefit of some genetic diversity in a plant but you also have potential drawbacks that the children of the parent plant may not have the exact same characteristics as the parent plant. And so, for example, pecans, uh, as far as I know, most pecans that are grown commercially are grown by grafting. They're not grown by sprouting individual pecan nuts. And so if they've got a really good productive tree with large, yummy nuts, they'll grab branches off of it and graft them onto other pecan trees. 
And so I've been growing shagbark hickories from the actual nuts, and I've been selecting the largest and yummiest nuts I can find. Will the trees that grow from those nuts be large, produce large and yummy nuts like their parents did? I can't really say. It's sort of a 20-year experiment because that's how long it'll take from when I plant the hickory nuts to when the trees are big enough to start producing nuts on their own. Well, okay, so there's a, there's a drawback in terms of predictability, but for my conversations with all these adaptive breeders who are interested in more resilient uh, genetic genetics in the food crops, especially at a time of climate change, they're saying, well, it's very good to have hetero, hetero, heterogeneity within your population of the plants that you're growing so that they have kind of more, more to respond with when, the, when there is a change, more genetic, kind of like a, instead of just being a chamber quartet, it's like a big symphony of right. characteristic possibilities. And right. number one, and, and, and number two, and, that you, um, that in that unpredictable, well, I guess I'll just have you respond to that. Uh, they're entirely correct. It's just uh, this is where, um, you know, there's a, there's a bit of disagreement between the permaculturalists and the native plant people because the permaculturalists are all about grafting and focusing on, you know, just sticking to the largest and yummiest stuff that they can find. And if it's not native, they don't care. They just want large and yummy, and that's it. And the native people say, no, we need to be planting native. We need to be planting straight species. We need to be respecting the ecological integrity of these plants and, 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 plant, and plant species that are recognizable by their insect friends, by their bird friends, and stuff like that. And once you get into some weird cultivars and stuff, it, it, it gets increasingly uh, riskier in terms of there actually being wildlife benefit and value to it. So I think both arguments have a lot going for them, and I can see both sides of the issue. I have found that a lot of the straight species I work with, like the beech plums and the shagbark hickories, they're really good just the way they are. You don't need to develop cultivars out of them. They're, they're yummy, and even the worst shagbark hickory nut I've ever had is still really good. So they range from <laughs> really good to totally awesome. Yeah, kind of like young farmers in that way, I'd say. Um, you know, and then it feels like there's, I've just been learning about um, this U new UNESCO uh, designation that is for cultural landscapes and a lot of agricultural landscapes, like the lemon gardens and, um, you know, these amazing rice paddies that are stacked and th these um, kind of ancient and highly culturally significant uh, sites where so much biological domestic biological diversity was born and which are now um, kind of like relics or almost like museum pieces of not just uh, a certain kind of plant, but uh, the range of the genetics and the cultural practices of making land races that were based in place that is essentially a truce between the permaculturist and the native plant enthusiasts. Um, anyway, I think I'm well, talking too good. much because we're running out of time. <laughs> Let's well, um, uh, I guess your final thoughts would be my, would be the question. Okay. Well, I'll just, um, uh, respond to what you just said in terms of like heirloom vegetables and how important the diversity is, the genetics in those plants. I've heard John Forty, who's a really good botanist say, 
the best way to save plants is to eat them. And it is absolutely true in the terms of heirloom vegetables because the more that people seek them out and eat them, the more that farmers will be induced to grow them. That's not true with a lot of wild plants, though, because a lot of wild plants can't be cultivated, and they can't, um, you can't scale them up so that if they got popular that uh, uh, the harvesting pressure could easily wipe them out. So even with native species, I'm talking about common native species that I'm promoting and planting. I'm not dealing with rare species at all because I have to leave that to the province of the ecologist. But in terms of adding common native edible species to our landscapes, I'm all for it, and I'm happy to help anyone who wants to do that. Wow. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I hope that we can induce you to come up to the Adirondacks um, where we have a Farming with the Wild track at our festival in September called Power North, which I'm also hoping everyone who's listening might put in their calendars. Three days of festivities. Festivities. The themes are farming with the wild, uh, agroforestry, silvopasture. Uh, those are all one theme, <laughs> and uh, draft power and um, rural populism. So, anywho, that'll happen in the Adirondacks, in the Champlain Valley, in northern New York. Thank you, Russ, for coming on the show and for your incredible work. And I hope we get to hang out sometime. Thank you for inviting me. It was great to talk to you. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. I'm in love with Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>